If you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do this morning, let's turn together to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, and this will be our final sermon in this series through the book of James. We're just looking at two verses this morning, and I only have two points. Now, don't let that get your hopes up too high, uh, but we only have two points to look at this morning. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, and if you found your way there, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You can be seated this morning. We find here really an interesting last two verses uh, to this challenge that James has been giving to these churches, these churches that have been dispersed uh, and, and through the greater part of the empire there uh, as persecution came in and they separated themselves out in order to avoid some of that persecution. He's been writing in really in such a way as to encourage them in the strength of the faith, to encourage them on what true faith looks like and how to determine if they are in the faith and just the challenges of the Christian life. Uh, but he comes to these last couple of verses, and in these last couple of verses, he, he gives them an exhortation. And it's placed here at the end to emphasize its importance. And in fact, one commentator referred to the idea that out of everything that James says in this letter, in this book, that perhaps these two verses are two of the most important verses in the entirety of the book. And he calls here to those brethren. He uses that word that he's used throughout the book whenever he's referring to those who are of the household of faith, those who are of the family of God. He says, my brethren. So we understand who he's talking to this morning. And this challenge and encouragement here is an encouragement and challenge to those who are the weary ones, to those who are the weak ones, and to those who by some stage of life, by some decision, have grown weary and wandered or fallen away from the truth. So the first thing I want you to notice in this passage is an exhortation of love, because really this is what it's all about. This is a, an exhortation of love to the believers to watch out for those among the congregation who are weary, to watch out amongst the congregation for those who are weak in the faith. And it's an exhortation of love because it's exactly what we have all been called to do here as believers. It is an exhortation that as Christians, we are to look around and see those who need help, and to go to them in those moments. Now, if you remember back, he had been giving an exhortation in this passage to endure suffering, to endure persecution, to endure seasons of difficulty. And in the passage we looked at last week, where James had told us to call for those to pray, to pray, have the elders of the church pray for us, to have fellow believers pray for us. Do you remember, what was it that James said they were going through? He says they were suffering. He says they were facing difficult moments. That word suffering was the idea of, of anguish and weakness and weariness in the midst of trials and difficulties of this life. Because James understood that there would be some among them that faced with things that they were going to be facing in their life, faced with that time of weariness or disappointment or discouragement or persecution, that some were going to be led astray. Some were going to fall by the wayside. And so James is calling to those in the church to be sure to watch out for those around them. He says, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth. What does it mean to stray? Well, it means to miss the path. It means to get lost along the way. 
Matthew Henry said, it is no mark of a wise or holy man to boast of being free from error or to refuse to acknowledge when he is in error. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are not without potential to be wrong in a certain situation. There are times in our life where we make the wrong decision. There are times in our life where, as we study the Scriptures, we can believe the wrong thing sometimes, which is why it's so important that we're always going back to the truth of Scripture. Sadly, I would say that many of us, I know that I can think of several people that I know who I believe were genuine, are genuine Christians and believe they have been saved by the Lord, but along the way they have come under the teaching of someone who has begun to lead them into error. And so James is instructing them. He says, we need to be careful to watch out for one another. He says, if any among you strays to be pulled off the path, to be lost, to be to become in error, into an error, he says, you have strayed from the truth. Well, now, what is the truth? Well, we understand what the truth is. The truth is God's Word. It's what is revealed to us in the Scriptures. And, and in here, it inherently has the idea not just of truth, but of right conduct and right doctrine. Because really, those two things tie together. If we have right truth, if we have the understanding of what the Scripture teaches us, then, then that is also evident in the way that we live our lives. Our, our lives are fleshed out of our doctrine. So if we have incorrect doctrine, we will have incorrect conduct. We will have incorrect behavior. So James is calling him. He says, some of you have departed from this idea of the truth, from the truth that is in the Scripture. John Gill, in his commentary on this passage, pointed that there were three ways that someone could depart from the truth. He said they could depart from the from Christ as the truth. And we know that ultimately Christ is the supreme of all truth. All truth is found in Him. He said, secondly, you could depart from the truth of Scriptures. This is not speaking what is according to them, so getting carried off into false teaching or to embrace contrary notions to the Scriptures. Or he said that one could be led astray in the truth of the gospel. And the gospel is the word of truth. It's the doctrine of our faith. It's the uprightness of our conversation. So in any of those ways, one could be pulled off from the truth. The Scripture tells us that truth is what brings us to the light. John chapter 3, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having being wrought in God. Why is the truth so important to us as believers? Well, it's important to us as believers because it is what purifies our soul. First Peter chapter 1, since you have obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. There's two things tied in that passage. It's this idea of obedience to the truth, of the truth of Christ, of the truth of the Scriptures, but also this sincere love of the brethren. Because if we love truth, then we will love one another in that truth. We will not want to see anyone fall by the wayside. I think this is one of those things that we need to, to be keenly aware of as believers because we can so easily fall into the spirit of the age that says, my life is my life and that person's life is their life. They're going to do what they're going to do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And I can't tell them any differently. But brothers and sisters, if we truly love someone, we will warn them. We will correct them. We will bring them to the truth of understanding. Now, this applies for those who are outside the faith. It is a loving thing to bid warning doom, to, to, to warn somebody of what the Scripture says if they are in outright blatant sin. 
But it also applies to those who are inside the body of Christ. If we see another brother or sister who is veering off into false doctrine, who is letting their daily discipline of faith become lackadaisical, and they're getting caught up in maybe a manner of speaking or a manner of attitude that is not godly, it is our duty out of love to go to them and to bring correction, to go to them and to bring a warning, but to do all of that in the midst of love. We're not doing it because we're angry at someone. We don't do it because we rejoice in, in, in their error. We do it because we love them and we desire for them to be walking in obedience to Christ. So James is giving this exhortation of love. He says, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back. Now that one turns him back is the idea of of conversion. But James here is not speaking of conversion of one who is lost, coming to salvation for the first time, but he's speaking of one who is a Christian who for a season of time has drifted from where they need to be in the faith. This is the idea here of this community aspect of faith, because he says, if someone among you strays from the truth, and then another one brings him back. This phrase came to my mind as I studied this this last week. It's everyone for everyone in comparison to all for myself or everyone for themselves. It's everyone for everyone. As the body of Christ, we are called to this community of faith to watch out and to care for one another. It's interesting that James is writing this passage in some, such a way, in the original language and the words that he uses and the fact of where he places this in the letter, he's writing this in such a way that he assumes that the believer will feel a necessity to do this. Because this really isn't so much a command as it is an exhortation that he already expects that they'll do this. He's just reminding them of the benefit of doing it. He's just reminding them of the importance of doing it, but he assumes that if you're a brother in Christ and you love one another, you're immediately or automatically going to be desiring to do this when you see someone among you begin to fall into error. I think oftentimes we can be so guilty of seeing it happen, and perhaps we feel like, well, you know, I, I just don't know enough to go talk to them about this, right? They, they've been a Christian longer than I have, so how could I ever go to them and say something to them? But we need to remember that as Christians, we're not above one another depending upon how long we've been a Christian versus how long we haven't been a Christian. We're not above one another depending on how many degrees we have or how many degrees we don't have. We're all part of the body of Christ, and if we love one another... We will go to each other to offer this correction. Listen to to what John Calvin said about this. He said, this idea of, of turning one back who has strayed, he says, quote, a work so excellent ought to by no means be neglected. He went on to say, to give food to the hungry and drink to the thirsty, we see how much Christ values such acts. But the salvation of the soul is esteemed by him as much more precious than the life of the body. We must therefore take heed lest souls perish through our sloth, whose salvation God puts in a manner in our hand. James is exhorting us here to help turn someone back from this error 
to turn back from this misbelief, to turn back from this decision that has caused them to depart from where they need to be. Now, how are these people to be won back? How does this happen? Well, let's read the verse, but then I want to go back. But he says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, now it seems on, on the first reading of that, there's a lot of emphasis on the person here who's doing the work, right? One turns him back. He says, let the know that the one who turns him back from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. But now we understand that God is the one who is doing this work. But God chooses to use us as his hands in the instrument of this work. It's God who does the saving initially when we are converted. And it's God who does the correcting work in the life of the believer. It's God who does the chastising. It's God who does the redeeming. It's God who does all of that. But we see very clearly in the scripture that he has chosen to use us as the means by which he does those things. So how are these people won back? They're won back ministerially by ministering to the people. They're won back instrumentally by bringing them to correction, showing them what the truth of the scripture says and calling them to respond to it. And how do we know this? We know that God desires to do this and God will do this. Paul tells us in Philippians, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. So if God has promised that he will perfect this work, how does he do that perfecting work in us? He does it by the power of the Holy Spirit, but he also does it through the teaching of his word and he does it through the body of Christ. We are not isolated in our faith. We're not off alone and just trying to do this by ourselves, but God has created the church so that as one another, we can stand alongside one another. And in moments, we love each other. And in moments, we comfort one another, but also in moments, we correct one another in order that we can be who God has called us to be and that he continues that good work in us and carries us through. The emphasis here is that the one who has departed from the truth, who has strayed, is now going to be brought back. But how again? How are they brought back to faith or to the true faith? How are they brought back to understanding that they have erred in their ways? How are they brought back to where they need to be? Well, the Scripture gives us a couple of different ways. Remember Paul's words to Timothy? He says, preach the word, be in season, out of season, And he says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with what great patience and instruction. We come alongside one another and we're willing to do the difficult things. We must be willing to speak hard truth to each other. It's never easy. If we see a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ who has begun to believe something wrong or begun to do something that we know will be detrimental to their spiritual health, it's usually never easy to come alongside of them and to correct them. But it's the necessary thing. Those of you in the room who have children know and understand that it's never easy to discipline your children. It's hard. You don't want to have to do it. But you know it's necessary for their spirit. It's necessary for their soul. It's necessary for their look, their, their longevity as a human being. How many of you ever remember when your parents, when you were younger, your parents saying, this hurts me more than it hurts you. 
And as a kid, you think, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. But then you become a parent and you understand, right? You understand the difficulties of discipline and correction. And it's the same inside the church. Now, most of the time, we would not be talking about someone veering off into heretical doctrines. Because if someone veers off into heresy, obviously that would be most likely a sign that they were never truly converted to begin with. But there is evidential times where people can be susceptible to fall into false teaching. There is no shortage of false teaching available to people on the internet and in television, anywhere you look today. And some of those things are so subtle that it's very easy for someone who is not grounded in the faith to begin to veer that direction and before they realize that they've been carried headlong into something else. But it's just, it's very easy for us to drop our guard spiritually when it comes to the things that we watch and we listen to and we allow to go into our mind. Now, again, don't hear me this morning as saying that you can't watch television or you can't go to movies or you can't listen to music. But there is an impact that those things will have on your spiritual condition. There's an impact that those things will have on your relationship with Christ. If all that you're putting into your heart during the week is is things that are not godly and not uplifting to your spirit, it will have an effect on who you are. It will have an effect on your walk. And sometimes we have to have those difficult questions. To quote Matthew Henry again, he said, if any man do err, be they ever so great, you must not be afraid to show them their error. And be they ever so weak and little, you must not disdain to make them wiser and better. Why? Because James is doing this all out of an exhortation of love. We are to come alongside one another to help one another, not to prove ourselves right, not to make ourselves feel better, not to get revenge on somebody, but we're doing it because we desperately love them. We deeply love them and we want to see what's best for them in Christ. Why do we discipline our children? Because we love them and we want to see what is best for them. Why does Christ discipline those whom he loves? Because he loves us and he wants what is best for us. Why as believers do we go to one another and have difficult conversations about the truth of Christ and the truth of the scriptures? Because we love each other and we want what is best. So he says, if any among you strays and one turns him back, so goes to him, bids him a warning, converts him back to realize the error of his ways, to bring him back to truth. He says, this here is an exhortation of love. He's reminding him, this is something that we must be always aware of and always mindful of in the Christian faith. We should always be looking for these opportunities, always willing to do what is necessary to be done. One commentator said, he who is such an instrument has much reason to thank God that he was ever born. Think about that. In this life, we can be tempted to think that the greatest things that we could be accomplishing is to have lots of money, to have a big house, to have a successful career, to have a great following of people. But what we understand that the Scripture teaches us is that to be a person who is responsible for helping one who has erred in their faith to be helping one who is weary in their walk with Christ and to bring them to where they need to be, to come alongside of them, to offer correction and offer love, to offer chastisement, but also to offer charity, to come alongside and to do that with one's is far greater than anything else that there is in this life. 
God has chosen you and me to be his instruments of faith in this world. God has done the work through Jesus Christ. I can't save anyone and neither can you. But God has said, even though you can't do it, I'm going to let you have a part of it. This great thing I've done through Jesus Christ in redeeming his people back to him, this great thing that I've done in Christ in providing salvation for the elect, this great thing that I have done in offering forgiveness of sin and everlasting life to those who I have foreordained before the foundation of the earth. He said, we've already done it. It's already done. It's already accomplished. He says, but I'm going to let you have a part. We would think it a great honor to be invited to some banquet of some, you know, whatever president you like or don't like. Think of a president you did like, and as if the president invited you to the White House, you would consider that a great honor. Not a lot of people get that invitation to come. But brothers and sisters, the invitation of Christ to be a part of the work of the kingdom is far greater than being called to the richest kingdoms of this world and to be sitting at the table right beside the president or the king or the ruler of a nation. Because we're a part of something that no one else can do except those who are in Christ. To labor for the salvation of others is something that a value can never be put on. And this laboring for others is not something that's limited to just a few believers, right? It's not something that God has said, okay, here are all of those whom I have saved, and I'm going to pick a handful out of these people to do the work of the kingdom and to do the work of the gospel and to lead others to Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and you have repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ, you are a part of that work. God has called you to the work of the kingdom. God has called you to the preaching of the gospel. God has called you to the delivering of those who are in captive to Christ and to come to know him as their Lord and Savior. What an amazing privilege has been bestowed to us solely by the grace of God. He didn't need us. God, in his, in his infinitesimal power, I mean, in his great power, could have chosen any other way, right? He, he could have just decided in, in any regard of how people would be saved, but he has chosen to use you and me for the work of the kingdom. So James says, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back. So this is an exhortation of love here in verse 19, but I also want you to notice in verse 20 that there is a promise of perseverance, He says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He says, let him know. Who's he speaking of? He's speaking of the one who would do this work of the kingdom. He's continuing with this idea of exhortation of of an encouragement here because he says, just remind the one who does this work. The work's not always going to be easy. The work's not always going to be joyful because sometimes people are not going to respond in the way that we hope they would. We hope that if we go to somebody in love and patience and, and, and offer this word of correction to them, that they would look at it, they would look at the scriptures and they would say, you know what, you're right. I, I'm going to correct it. But oftentimes what happens when we go to someone is they just become more hardened in it. They don't want to hear it. 
Why? Because again, there is a teaching, there is a teaching of the age today that all you have to do is to pray a prayer and become a Christian. And then God's grace is so abundant that you can pretty much live however you want to live and there's no consequences for it. You you can live in an outright sin in anything you want to do. And brothers and sisters, there are some people who I believe are genuinely Christian who have been caught up into this teaching because it's just all anybody has ever told them. They don't believe it because they've been faced with the truth of scriptures and believed it. They believe it because no one has ever gone to them in love and said, brother, here's why what you are believing is wrong. Here's why what you have been taught is incorrect. And it's not because I said it. It's not because the pastor said it, not because a Sunday school teacher said it. It's because the word of God says it. And when people are brought to that perspective, if they are genuinely believers, who are erring in their ways, then the Holy Spirit will do his work to correct their hearts. That will be the evidence there. But James says, let the one who remembers that the one who turns this person, turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That turns is the idea of being corrected and being brought back to where they need to be. The word that James hears here for sinner, oftentimes when we see the word sinner, we've talked about this in the book of James, that it's usually always in reference to those who are outside of the faith in Christ. But here James is referring it to the idea in the same way that Paul did. He said, I was the chief of sinners. He's talking about the one who has sinned, and because of this sin, they're a sinner, not talking about their salvation, not talking about their eternal destination, but talking about the one who has done something, they have sinned in their faith and need to be corrected. Which brings us to ask the question of of the age again, what is backsliding? Because you'll hear this term used a lot, especially in the idea of someone who has erred in their faith, who has done something, who has sinned, and for a time or a season has, has drifted far from where they need to be. Now, culturally, people will tell you that backsliding is someone who made a profession of faith when they were young, but since that profession of faith has lived a life of, of reprobation, has lived a life of however they want to do, but that hopefully at one time they'll finally come back to Christ. They're just backslidden. But now scripturally we understand, can someone backslide? Yes. Someone can be a genuine Christian and they can do something. They can make an error in judgment. They can sin. They can create, do some, uh, commit some type of sin or act that will bring consequences on their life to put them in a place where they have drifted from Christ. Not that Christ has drifted away from them, but because of their decision, they have put something in their life that has caused this separation. But what does the Scripture teach us about people in those moments? This is not someone who goes on for decade after decade after decade after decade apart from Christ. Why? Because the Scripture tells us that the Lord chastises them who He loves. Right? Hebrews chapter 6 excuse me, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as a son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So if someone is a genuine believer, and they've done something, they've believed something that is an error, then the Holy Spirit will work upon the heart of that person and He will bring discipline to them and He will bring correction to them. Why? In order to bring them back to where they need to be. 
So the worldly perspective, it says that somebody can just walk away and just do whatever they want, but they're still a Christian. But that evidence is the fact that they are not a Christian because they are not under the discipline of the Lord. They're not suffering under that. They don't have any care or regard for what the Lord thinks about their situation or what the Lord thinks about their life. But someone who is genuinely a Christian, if they err, the Lord will bring discipline on their life in order to bring them back to where they need to be. Again, in Hebrews, he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. For he disciplined us for a short time, it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. So he says, let one knows who turns a sinner, what from the error of his ways, errors in judgment, errors in life. Matthew Henry said this, he said, errors in judgment and life generally go together. There is some doctrinal mistake at the bottom of every practical miscarriage. I've thought a lot about that this week as I looked around things that are happening in our world. Let me read that again. He said, errors in judgment and life generally go together. There is some doctrinal mistake at the bottom of every practical miscarriage. So when someone sins, when someone errs in their judgment, what he is saying is that if at the root of that, the root cause of that is some incorrect doctrinal perspective. They have misunderstood something about the truth of Scripture. When we look around the world today and we see people who are trying to reinvent what Christianity looks like, trying to recreate or reinvent what Christianity is, and saying that God is not a God of judgment, or that God is okay with sexual immorality, or that God is okay with this sin or okay with that sin, why do they do that? Because at some point along the line, they have believed an incorrect idea of the doctrine of God. Somewhere along the way, they have been deceived in the truth of the Scripture. And so James is instructing us that what we have to do is to not just warn them. He says we have to turn them from the error of their ways. That we're doing this by instructing them, by giving them the truth of the Scripture. And he says that one who does so, he says, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of of sins. Now, let's be clear on the front end of this. There have been some in the past who have taught that what James is teaching here is that James is speaking of the one who is doing the correction is the one who is saving his soul from death and covering his own sin. So they are teaching that if you're doing this kind of work of the gospel, of correcting others and helping them, that by doing so that you are providing for yourself some type of, of, of sanctification and justification, that you're covering your sins. But now the Scripture teaches us, and we know in, entirely well, that we are not justified by our works. We are saved by faith in Christ. There's no works of the law, no works of obedience, no works of diligence for God that can justify us. It's only the work of Christ alone. So if that's the case, then, then who is James speaking of here? James is speaking of the one who is receiving the correction. And he's saying, if you go to that brother or sister and you offer that correction to them, know that through your work, that person's soul will be saved from death and that a multitude of sins will be covered. How are you going to save their soul from death? Well, you're going to save their soul from death because 
it will be evident in their conversion and correction that they are truly in the faith. So you're saving them ultimately from a physical death and from a spiritual death. Now, bear with me for just a moment as we try to unpack a little bit of this. Because this is, again, this is a passage that has often been misinterpreted, often been misapplied. Because there's the question here of, of how does this work in the idea of Reformed theology and understanding of the perseverance of the saints, right? Because again, we're not talking this morning about one who is a Christian who drifts away and becomes not a Christian. We know Scripture teaches that's not a possibility. If you are saved, if you are saved by the blood of Jesus, you've repented and put your faith and trust in Christ, you are God's and you will never depart and you will never leave. But how does this idea work that there could be one who errs in their way and James is saying here that the one who turns from that will save his soul because it almost seems to be teaching that if the one doesn't turn from their error, then their soul will perish in the end. And, and that is what James is saying from the perspective of this is that if one does not turn from their error, if one continues in that error, in that sin, then they will perish. Why? Not because they have departed from the faith, but because they were never a part of the faith to begin with. This is something that James has been emphasizing through the entirety of this book. So we have to look at these two verses in context of the whole. James has been teaching the believers over and over again that there are some among you who have professed faith who are not genuinely converted. And you will be able to tell by the way that they act and the way that they do, the way that they teach and the way that they live, and so now here, as James comes to this exhortation, he does not want those inside of the church who are genuine believers but are struggling in faith to just be ostracized because of a moment or because of a season of life. He wants to come alongside them. He says, come alongside them with, with gentleness and with meekness and with love and correction. He said, because in doing so, you will see the evidence of true faith that they will put go back to where they need to be. They will come back amongst the brethren. They will, they will disregard and cast off that false teaching, disregard and cast off that sin. And he said, and in doing so, you will save their soul from death. He's just emphasizing this fact that it's, again, all a work of Christ. He says, and you will cover a multitude of sins. James here is emphasizing the work of Christ in our lives. Because we can't cover a multitude of sins. I can't even cover one sin for anybody. I can't even cover one sin for myself. But by being a part of God's work in this world, James is saying that, that on our behalf, we are going out and we're ministering to people and that God is using us as his instruments. And that because we're being obedient to do the work that he's causing us to do, he says, we're helping those to cover a multitude of sins. Not that we're doing it, but that God is doing it through us. He's taking us and taking the truth of that knowledge to those people in order to cover their sins. James here references a verse in, his, in the original language in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 10, verse 12, which says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Now, when the writer of Proverbs was writing this verse, he's speaking to the idea of 
interpersonal relationships. And that if you hate someone, if there's anger there, you're always just going to be at strife with one another. You're never going to have good community or good relationships. But if you genuinely love each other, he says that covers all transgressions. Why? Because when we love one another, we're willing to overlook things. A marriage will not work if you don't have love for one another. Because there are going to be times when your spouse does something or you do something to your spouse that's going to cause you to be upset. But because you love one another, you're willing to overlook those transgressions and move past those things and to work through those things. Whereas if you have hatred for one another, you can't work past that. You you can't work past those situations. So he's using the same type of idea and, and pulling it over to the idea of the love that God has shown us through Jesus Christ. And it's not just this, the love that covers our sin, it, because in Christ, our sin is taken away. It's covered by the blood of Christ. Christ in his work on the cross has provided a way for our sin to be taken away. And not just one, not just a few, but all of them. Aren't you grateful this morning that the work of Christ covers all of your sin? A multitude of sin, James says here. All of our sin is covered through Christ's work on the cross, through his justification, Through his redeeming work, he has made a way for us to know forgiveness. James is writing here to encourage these believers to watch out and care for one another. I have been continually amazed, and and perhaps at this point I shouldn't be, but just at the providence of God in the studies that we've done and how pertinent they seem to be to where we are as a church and as individuals and as a nation. For the last several books, it seems that as we go through and we come to certain places, that it's just so poignant as to where we are in these books compared to what's going on around us in the world. And we are at a place in our culture, a place in our society, where the warnings that James has given here, the exhortation that he's given throughout this entire book, are so perfect for us as believers in the 21st century in America. Because we understand that to be a Christian is not just to stand up and say, I'm a Christian. There was a time in the past where you could almost take that for granted. Where if somebody said that, chances are likely that they were. Now, if you go to places like China, or you go to places like North Korea, and somebody says to you, I'm a Christian, you can pretty much take that at face value because they understand the cost and the significance of that. That it could cost them their life, that it could cost them their livelihood, that it could cost them everything because they know true faith and they know what the Scripture teaches and they know what it means to be a Christian. But now in America, it's not the same. Because in America, we have a very superficial Christianity on one side that requires nothing of people. 
that says all you have to do is just call yourself a Christian, pray a prayer, attend church a few times a year, and you can call yourself a Christian. But then on the other side, we have a very liberalized Christianity that looks nothing like the teaching of Scripture, but kind of holds to some key tenets that Jesus was a pretty nice guy who did some pretty good things, and we should love one another like Jesus did. And if we love one another like Jesus did, then that will make God happy in the end. They deny the truthfulness of Scripture. They deny the atonement of Christ. They deny the virgin birth. They deny the creation story of God. They deny the, the, the authority of the Scriptures. I watched a video just this last week of a guy who was interviewing a pastor of, a, of an open and affirming church, and he was asking him about the Scripture. And he said, well, you know, we don't believe that the Scripture is, is entirely accurate. We don't believe that it's infallible. We believe that it's, it's a good book, but it's not infallible. Well, brothers and sisters, why believe any of it? If it's not infallible, if it's not inerrant, if it's not the Word of God, just close it and go home. But compared to that, we have this on both sides. So when you have churches who teach the truth of Scripture as is given in Scripture, it does not make for an easy life in this world. We understand and know that the longer this world goes on, the more difficult it is going to become for us to be Christians. The more difficult it will be for us at our home, in our neighborhoods, at our jobs, in our church, to say this is what we believe, that we believe that God's word is true and every man a liar. But this is exactly what was happening to the church in James's day. They understood this. They understood the difficulties of living faith in a hostile world. Some of you in this room are old enough to remember that Christianity was not always a hostile religion in America. But we are living in a day where Christianity is now considered a hostile religion. And so here, through this book, God has given us such wonderful exhortation to guard ourselves first, because this has been the emphasis James has put on from the very beginning Inward perspective first, evaluate yourself, and then help others. And if we're going to do what God has called us to do in the time in which he has called us to live, this is exactly what we've got to be willing to do. We've got to look inwardly first to make sure that we're where God has desired for us to be, and then we've got to be willing to help others. And brothers and sisters, as James has pointed out here in these last two verses, there's no greater thing that God has called us to be a part of. Sure, there's going to be difficult times. Sure, there will be seasons of hardship. But as we've talked about before in different passages, when it's all said and done, when we come to the end of our life, whether it be through the return of Christ, whether it be through persecution, or whether it just be through old age, I promise you, no one in this room will look back at their life and wish that they had done less for the kingdom of God. We'll wish we'd have done more. And we'll look back at our life, and even in the hardest seasons of our life, we'll look back and say, you know what? It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that difficult in light of everything. Because God has called us to something far greater in the work of the kingdom, in the watching over of one another, in the caring of the church. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word and your instruction. Father, help us to be mindful of one another. Help us to be mindful of our own souls, but Father, help us to be mindful of one another, to care for one another. 
And Lord, if we see a brother or sister in error, if we see them doing something, saying something, believing something, Lord, that we would be willing to go to them in love. Lord, willing to go to them in humility. Willing to go to them to offer the word of correction that is needed. Father, we're thankful that your word promises us here. That for one who is a true convert of Christ, one who has truly been saved, but for some reason has, has, has erred in their way. Lord, we're thankful that your promises here that if we go to them, Lord, that we can see them restored to where they need to be. And their Father, on the other side of that, and conversely, that we also will be able to tell and to know those who have not been genuinely converted because of their refusal to submit to your word. 